Well, this morning we begin a stewardship series, which for people familiar with church feel that that is code language for raising money, an unfortunate mischaracterization, because steward is an important word in the Bible that uh, speaks to our fundamental identity in God. The word steward means manager. And fundamentally, we were made, our first human occupation is to be managers of everything God gives us. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. So God created human beings, blessed them, and said, have many children so that your descendants will live over all the earth and bring it under their control. I'm putting you in charge now. That doesn't mean God says we can manage the earth however we want to. It means we are called to manage creation as God wants to, as God would do it in our place. Now, the paradox about this concept of stewardship is you don't have to believe in God to be a steward. You don't have to believe God is a source of your provisions in life to be a manager of them because our provisions and our blessings have a lot more to do with our lives than just money. Uh, God gives us these bodies of ours, these minds of ours, these, these souls, talents, abilities, influence, relationships, and resources. How we manage those things says everything about what we do believe about life. Turn that around a little bit, kind of making an inverse proposition. And think about the ways you manage what you have as a declaration about what you believe. How do you manage your resources? Again, I'm much bigger than money. How do you take care of yourself? How do you manage your time? How do you uh, manage your resources? It, it tells a story. Stewardship tells a story. And the story reveals what we love most in life. So we're calling this series Love Cubed or Love to the Third Power. The inspiration for this series came from a conversation I had some time back with Brady Witten, the pastor of First United Methodist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was talking about a series they did back at the beginning of the year at their church and the impact it had on their congregation. He said, we, we talked about love to the third power, uh, the, the three different loves Jesus talks about in the two great commandments he brings together from the Torah. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you think about it, there are three distinct loves being offered there. The love of God, the love of others, and the love of self. As I listened to him, I considered how what was being described here speaks to the heart of, of stewardship because stewardship is about loving. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only son. Giving and loving go hand in hand. 
Stewardship reveals what we really love in life. So to to think about biblical stewardship, not just being earthly managers of what we have, but to really bring in the concept of, of stewardship is to say, okay, how does God want me to look at all of this? And when we begin digging our faith into the way we manage what we have, it reveals what we love, to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves are the important aspects of life. So I want to invite you to do something Brady Whitten invited his congregation to do. For the next three weeks, I want you to do something every day. Do one thing every day to cultivate intimacy with God. Do one thing every day to serve someone else. And do one thing every day that's good for you. I hope you'll write those down. I hope you'll Put them in a place you're reminded and think about every day how you can do those. And I want to start this morning with the last one. Because for many Christians, that's probably the hardest place to begin. To do something good for you as a spiritual mandate. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite Susan Loomis to come up and to share our scripture reading with us today. The scripture this morning is from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and 9 and 10. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy. Now you have received God's mercy. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So we begin with the focus on loving self, which again, I feel like for many Christians is a hard place to start. We get the love of God and we get the love of others and both of those usually have to do with us doing a lot of stuff. Well, if I'm going to love God, I better get to church, better pray more, better read my Bible, better have devotion time, and then I need to love other people. I need to serve. I know I need to serve more. I need to do more for others. I need to volunteer. And if I have any time left, then it might be okay to take care of myself. Well, what if we start there? What if we begin with the proposition that loving ourselves is the starting point in in the Christian life? Because when, when we love God, what we really are coming in touch with is how much we are loved, and when we feel the love of God and the love of self, it results, it overflows and a love and a compassion for others. So I want us to use Peter's analogy again for the church. It's 
It's for the church and the community as a whole. And Peter is helping us imagine ourselves as the temple in Jerusalem to understand our significance because we don't worship in a temple. The church is not a building. The church is the people. But the gathered community can see itself and its significance only to the degree in which we understand it applies to us. So I want to look at some statements of Peter's that we just heard Susan read. And I want to just pick on three of them. This is far from exhaustive. We could spend a whole series just looking at what Peter says in the second chapter of his first letter. But I want to just pick on three of the statements to help us think about what does it really mean to love ourselves. One thing is where Peter says, you are a chosen people. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Think of the profundity of that statement. You're chosen. You're accepted. You are sought after. You remember being in elementary school and going out for recess on the playground? The teacher might have everybody play kickball and pick two captains, and the two captains were usually the kickball champions of the school. And they would alternate picking their teams. And almost always, it would get down to the same couple of kids who would get chosen last. I remember one time, a teacher reversed the order a little bit. She picked one of the kids who never got chosen early in the rounds to come and be the captain. Now, who do you think he picked first? The captain who never picked him unless he had to. That's who he picked first. The person whose acceptance of him meant so much. And, and as I just watched this play out, I think I got a, a little idea as to why, because for a few minutes, for just a few minutes, that kid got to be treated in an important way because the former captain stood over his shoulder and told him who to pick. Pick that one, now get that one. Now get that one, now get that one, so that they would have the winning team. For a few minutes, the person whose acceptance meant so much to him, he got to feel that person depending on him. But as soon as the sides were picked and the game started, it was back to the way things used to be. The need to be accepted by others is a powerful force. And if you don't feel it, it can do a couple of things to you. It can make you depressed. It can make you withdraw from people so that you don't have to experience that rejection. Or, or it can have an opposite effect. It can make you so overcompensate for the insecurity, it can make you arrogant to the point that you push people away. So that you can defend that by saying, well, those people just can't handle who I am. God wants us to know that we have an acceptance with God that supersedes other people. And it's not dependent on our earning it. In our new member class, we start by talking about what it means to be a Christian. And I talk with them about the three fundamental identities of calling ourselves Christian, that I'm a child of God, 
I'm a disciple of Christ and I'm a servant of God. And we spend most of the time talking about what it means to understand ourselves as child of God. Because if we jump ahead to what it means to be a disciple and a servant, we can so easily allow our acceptance to become what we do to earn it, what we do to merit it. And God wants us to know that our acceptance comes from what God says about us. We don't have to earn it. Boy, if you have to earn acceptance, you put life on a treadmill that will outlast us every time. John Quincy Adams served as distinction as president of the United States, senator, congressman, envoy to European powers, along with numerous critical roles in the American Revolution. But when he was 70 years old, he wrote, my whole life has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything I ever undertook. Can you imagine? Having that sense of acceptance in God is so critical to being able to love ourselves, to understand that God says you are chosen. And if you can't believe in what God says, believe in what God does. Look at the cross. The cross is God's way of saying to you, you are to die for. Through the cross, God says to you, you are to die for. You're chosen. Something else Peter says, you are living stones. What does that mean? Peter, of course, is thinking about the stones of the temple, the stones which literally built the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem is believed to contain the divine presence of God. Now, to this day, the nearest access point to the foundation of the original temple is the Western Wall in Jerusalem, and that is the only place at which Jews today can get near the Temple Mount. But let's understand they're not just getting near a building. They're getting near the place of God's divine presence. When you go into the area where only the men can go, where this picture was taken, you see the archway overhead built with massive stones in the time of King Herod. This is where Jesus would have walked the same stones. Stones that were cut to have a particular fit in that building. Whenever builders are building with stones, some stones don't work. They throw them aside, but they don't throw them away because they never know when they're going to need them. Peter uses this analogy because he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the capstone, the one that holds the archway up, the one that holds the whole building together. And Peter says, that's what Jesus Christ is. Now, we're not a building, but I want us to think about that idea of stone, says Peter. Because the stones of the temple contain the divine presence. That's why when people go to the wall today, they fold prayers and tuck them in the cracks. They touch the walls. Why? Because for Jews today, this is the nearest place on earth you can get to the presence of God. So Peter says, we, we are to be living stones. 
people in whom the presence of God lives in us because God made every one of us with a perfect fit to be God's presence for other people that's what makes us alive the other day our staff had a luncheon and we sat at tables and Pastor Eric asked us to share with each other books we're reading that are meaningful to us Crystal Hensley on our staff who is the director of our special needs ministry shared about a book that she's reading right now called My Body is Not a Prayer Request Disability Justice in the Church it's written by Amy Kinney who has lived her life in a wheelchair because of a physical disability and what she's writing about is her experience of ableism ableism which is to be treated less than full value because of your physical condition she says I've experienced ableism when I went to school as a child I've experienced it in places where I've worked and I've experienced it in church where I'm treated as as less than the same value of, of other people because of my physical condition so she wrote this book to say there's really no concept as disability because God made everybody just the way they should be and they have value and they have something to offer to the world. God made you the way you are. God wants to love others through you. I believe Peter would say to that amen. When um, I asked Crystal just to email me a little more information, I love what she wrote personally. One of the reasons I started attending St. Luke's is because I could really feel that people were living out this mission of providing hope for all. When you walk in the doors of our church, you can sense that love and inclusive environment. We have such an incredible people who share this vision of inclusion. And I'm excited to see how God uses his people to create more space and grow the diversity of our community. I believe what she's describing, Peter would say, is living stones. It it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Stones are not living Stones are dead. Stones are lifeless. And there are a lot of people who feel like stones. Dead and lifeless. And God wants us to know what it feels like to be alive because we're made with a perfect fit. For my devotions this year, I'm going through a two-year daily Bible, which it does, as you would suspect. It carves up the whole of the Bible into daily readings across two years. Now, I bought my two-year devotional Bible at the half-price bookstore because I'm cheap. (laughs) And I know it's a contradiction to think about buying your daily Bible as cheap as you can get it, but, you know, that's the way I roll. So, I have found in my daily Bible, obviously it's had a previous owner, that there are three little notations from some previous owner of this Bible, and they came on the first three days of the reading. 
So day one, January the 1st this year, I sat down to read, and I noticed in pencil over at the top, 8-14-06, first day of school. And I thought, how cool. I, I have a Bible that a student used. So I turn over to day two, 8-15-06. So day three, and the last notation this previous owner wrote in this Bible. Day three is the part in Genesis that speaks about Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. And if you can make it out in here, up in the top left-hand corner, it has, I try to hide. I wondered about the hands that held this before me. I wondered why a student wrote that. I try to hide. I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked and I never found another notation. And I wondered, did they keep reading? Did they ever come across anything that helped them remember God comes looking for us? God seeks us out. God does not want us to feel hidden. God wants us to feel recognized and as people who have worth and, and value in life. I hoped, I hoped that the hands that held this before me discovered that. We're to be living stones. We have a sense of life about us when we understand that God lives in us, that the divine presence abides in our souls and in our hearts. And when we live in such a way that we allow people to experience God through us, there's life in that. And that brings us to one more thing that Peter says that builds on this thought. You are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Peter moves the analogy from the idea of a building, the temple, to what goes on in the temple. The priest come and carry out the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So there are two functions which a priest served. One is to stand before God. The priest is able to come and stand in the presence of God. That is a holy and an awesome thing. And the other thing priests do, the second responsibility, is to communicate God's presence to the people, to be God's representative to the people, to bless the people, to help them know of God's forgiveness, to help them know of God's love and God's worth and God's values. It's an important job. And Peter says, you're a priest. That's what Martin Luther wanted to establish in the Protestant Reformation. Next Sunday, we'll make mention of this. It's Reformation Sunday next week. It was Halloween, October the 31st, that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door, protesting the way in which the church has separated itself from the people. One of the things that Luther did was to change the way they worshiped. People would go to church, they would stand, most of the people would have to stand, 
for hours in which the mass was conducted. So give me a break when we go five minutes over time. You're not standing for hours. The, the, the table in which the mass was conducted was pushed against the wall. So the priest would stand in front of the table facing the altar, facing God, representing the people. So you would stand for hours looking at the priest's backside. How would you like to experience that with me on some Sundays? So Luther took the table and he pushed it out. And he said, now the ministers are going to stand around the table and face the people. Now there's nothing between you and the table. What does that mean? You are a priest. You are a priest. No longer is there there going to be this idea, I'm not good enough to come before God. Somebody's got to do that for me. Somebody's got to stand on my behalf before God. I'm not worthy enough. No. No. You are a priest, and God wants to use you to communicate God's presence to others. God wants you to know you have full value and acceptance to stand before God. My friends, there's nothing selfish about that. There's nothing about this idea that the world, therefore, should revolve around us. Just the opposite. When we know our worth and our value, we become life-giving and life-saving to others. Patty Ayers is an executive coach working with our leadership. We had a lead team retreat the other day, and she told us about when she was an executive with a company that was struggling to improve its safety standards. So they went to study the DuPont Company, which at the time was the industry-leading corporation in employee safety standards. They followed them around, took copious notes on everything they said, took whatever information they were willing to give them, came home, implemented all of their policies and procedures, but they still could not get to the DuPont standards, and they wonder what's wrong. So they studied it a little more. They realized that there was a mantra that for all of their work in their company, that people would still say that they would go, accidents are going to happen. Accidents happen. When they went back to DuPont to kind of ply away a little bit more why they have such a low accident record and pointed out that there are other companies that have your policies and procedures. What's the difference? They learned of a little different mantra that all of the employees at DuPont said. All accidents are preventable. All accidents are preventable. Accidents happen. Where did that come from? They learned, digging back into the history of DuPont, that one of the early products they produced at DuPont was gunpowder. When they had an accident with gunpowder, it was pretty catastrophic. The DuPont family lived on the premises of the plant at that time. And when one accident hit the house, 
and harmed family members. The family said, we're going to change this. To take care of ourselves, we are going to say all accidents are preventable. So selfish. And it has saved the lives of untold numbers of other people. To love yourself well is the very best thing you can do for God and for the world. So this week, I hope every day, you'll do one thing to develop intimacy with God. You'll do one thing every day to serve someone else. And you'll do one thing every day that's good for you. Amen? Amen.